not just hearers. Father, we know it's your will that we become formed to the image of your Son, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will use your word in our lives for that purpose and to that end. Father, whatever is my opinion, I pray that we can quickly forget and we can be meditating this week on your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In 1936, Francisco Franco, he crossed the Mediterranean. He was with troops in Morocco. He crossed the Mediterranean into Spain and uh, defeated the Second Spanish Republic and established his dictatorship there in the country. He was a very, very devout Catholic. And one of the things he did not like was Protestants, or how they call them in Spain, uh, evangelicals, because evangelicals would read God's word for themselves and be able to judge other things, like, for example, governments, if they were acting correctly or not. Now, he liked how uh, in, the, in the Catholic they just read from the scripture the, the priest, and, and they would just listen to it, but there wasn't really any act, interaction with the text. So he made it, he made it uh, where you could not be an evangelical in Spain. In fact, during the Second Republic, there was uh, 636 churches in Spain, but by 1975, when he died and it moved to a, uh, a democracy, there was only six evangelical churches left. And they closed them down uh, systematically, and those who were evangelicals were put on a registry of uh, saying who was an evangelical. Interestingly enough, those who were evangelicals uh, magically would disappear. Uh, they wouldn't find them again. Uh, they, they just didn't know where they're at. And still people say that there are lost loved ones who they just have no information about. We, we can picture ourselves at that time. It's not too, too long ago. Uh, where we're there in Spain, we could picture maybe 1970, five years before Franco dies. And uh, someone comes and says uh, to the police, that loved one of yours is an evangelical. The police come and take that person away, and, and they disappear. You never hear about your loved one again. It might be a father, a mother. might be a brother, a wife, a husband. They just disappear. No one knows about them anymore. And you can imagine as Franco passes away, and King Juan Carlos takes the throne and has a new constitution, and it's a democracy, and that new constitution has a certain amount of religious liberty in it, and now uh, people are able to share the gospel, and somebody goes to that person who told the police about your loved one, someone gives them a gospel track and shares to them about Jesus Christ, and the person sees their need for a Savior, and they repent, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They come into your church, I'm not talking about a big church like this where you can sit on that side and not pay any attention to these people or be on this side and not pay any attention to this side. I'm talking about a small church, uh, maybe about the size of our choir room. And, and you're there, and there's that person. They don't recognize you. They don't know anything about you. How do you minister and worship God in community in that case? How do you serve the Lord, worship the Lord, grow in your faith, with that person being there. Can you imagine how it would feel? And, and what we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18, is how do you live in community? How does the group of blessed people come together and minister and worship the Lord? How, how does that happen exactly? 
it can be very difficult. We've seen in chapter 18 that uh, one of the things we have to do is remove obstacles, the obstacles in our life. One of the obstacles was pride. We have to remove that pride. We have to come to Christ as a child. Uh, the other obstacle was um, our, our sin, especially that sin where we're causing other people to sin. We have to get rid of it. And our wondering heart. We have to uh, go and, and pursue God with all of our heart and not be wandering around like uh, the sheep does. But we've also saw that God wants a pure heart, and we looked at church discipline. In fact, God cares more for a pure church more than a huge church. That's what he wants. He wants a pure church. Now, the church is comprised of sinners who have been saved, right? And uh, if you're new here, you just wait a couple weeks, and sure enough, somebody's going to offend you. I mean, it's just going to happen because we're sinners. And that's what we do. We offend each other. We, uh, things happen. We say, that's my job. Uh, don't, don't brew the coffee. That's my job. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, just, just wait around. You'll see it'll happen. Because why? We're saved, but we're sinners. And how do you live in this community? And what we saw in Matthew 18 is that there is this priority that God puts on a pure church. Not a perfect church, but a church that looks to over and over again confess its sin and, and make right. Now, uh, as we've been looking at this, it, we move into this aspect of forgiveness, which kind of uh, develops logically as he's talking about going and confronting a person for their sin. So you went and you confronted that person for their sin that they sinned against you, but um, the person maybe acknowledged that they did something bad. But usually it's very hard to still get over that, right? Many times we, uh, even though the person has apologized, 10 years later we still remember that person did this, and I remember it very clearly. I can remember the intonations of their voice, the glare they had in their eyes. We can, we can picture and recreate the scene perfectly, even though the person might have apologized 10 years ago. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this in, in a congregation, in a community of faith, of a group of people who's, who Jesus said are blessed? How do we live in this way? And the first thing we see as we look at this aspect of forgiveness, is that Peter has this question, and he comes up to Jesus. It says there in verse 21, uh, Then Peter came and said to him, Now, now the way that, Peter, that Matthew relates what Peter did, he kind of delays a little bit what Peter is doing. And it's giving the reader an opportunity to kind of analyze a little bit what in the world is Peter up to this time. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that Jesus had told Peter the disciples, that he was going to be persecuted and he was going to die at the hand of the leadership. And it was Peter who said, no, that's not going to happen. It was also the disciples who were kind of arguing who was going to be number four in the, in the kingdom. Remember that? They knew God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, but who's going to have that fourth place? Who's going to be on top of everybody else? Well, obviously, you're not going to be on top of God, but who's going to be on top of everybody else? And there was that argument that, that happened that we see just right here in this one text. Now, Matthew delays Peter's question, and it kind of makes the reader kind of guess, what is this, what does Peter want to say this time? Why, why doesn't he just be quiet and just listen? But his question is pretty good. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? So he's not talking about just any old person. He's talking about uh, uh, a brother 
someone who is related, someone who says God is their father, uh, how many times shall he uh, forgive him? Now this aspect of forgive uh, is, uh, it has this idea of um, a law that has gone against, uh, a sin that has gone against the character and law of God, and we're going to forgive, which is a, a release from a legal or moral obligation or consequence. So forgiveness has this idea of releasing somebody from a legal or moral obligation or consequence. So we're, we're not going to think about it anymore. We're not going to hold that person accountable. How, how many times before I do this? Now when we think about this word forgive, it doesn't mean that the offense never happened. If I forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that the, the offense never happened. It does happen. It, it has occurred. Uh, if I were to um, somebody lend me their car and I go driving out and, and I crash it, and the person forgives me for that, it doesn't make the car automatically pop back into place, right? The dent is still there. So forgiveness does not have to do with uh, obliterating, like dismissing that something happened, something still happened, but rather it carries the idea that you're no longer going to hold the person responsible for that. You're not going to bring it against their account. You're not going to hold them responsible for that. Uh, in thinking about this, some might already be thinking in their mind, it's like, if I apply this type of forgiveness to my life, it's really going to turn me into a doormat. I mean, people are just going to take advantage of me. If I don't hold people responsible for what they do, I mean, it, uh, everybody's going to take advantage of me. And it's been unfortunate that some preachers have, um, have, have told individuals who are in a relationship who are being abused that they just need to forgive and forget. And, and that's been bad counsel. Because in the case of abuse, there's a civil law that has been violated, and the police need to be called. And justice needs to be served. The person can still forgive the abuser, but there's still a consequence. Now, we think about in, in the Bible. Is there ever a situation where a sin was committed, forgiveness was given, but there was still a consequence? Well, yes, we can think about David, can't we? Here he sinned with Bathsheba, you remember? Yeah, even though his servants were like, hey, that's uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He decides to totally ignore that. Then has Uriah killed. And God sends his prophet, and he ends up having, he ends up asking for forgiveness. David asked for forgiveness, but he, did the sword ever depart from his house? No. His family suffered the consequence of his sin over and over again. Remember when he decided to number Israel? Was there a consequence? Oh, yes. Uh, he still had forgiveness, but there's consequence to sin. So I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm talking about not holding the person accountable. If the person violates a civil law, there's a responsibility of calling the civil law to, to be involved here. Now, as we look at this, we see that Peter is rather generous. He says, uh, How often shall my brother sin against me before I forgive him? Up to seven times? That is quite generous. You have to admit that is quite generous. How many times do you allow someone to cut you off on the road before you start sharing your opinion about how to drive? Is it two? I bet two times don't even happen, and you start telling that person how to drive, right? You don't wait to know seven. Uh, it, it, you might say, okay, you know, maybe he's in a hurry. After the second time, you're going to do something. 
go in front and cut him off, see if he likes it, right? So uh, this is being very generous. To offer seven times that you're going to uh, forgive is rather generous. Jesus' reply and how Matthew records it is, is rather quickly. He, it jumps right to it. It doesn't let you daydream as it did with Peter's uh, question. He jumps right into it. He says, I, I do not say uh, to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, uh, for some of you, your translation might have 490, uh, which would be 70 times seven as it has here. Uh, for others, it might be 77. And uh, the reason there's a, a, a difference there is because it's kind of vague how it's put in the, in the text. What is it meaning here? And the point that Jesus is trying to point out here is not an exact number of times that you're going to be forgiving somebody, but it gives a, a huge number that, that you're supposed to be forgiving. It, it, it makes it incredibly big that you have to be forgiving this person over and over and over again. He, he, he tells them this. And it gives Matthew, it would have been a shock to Matthew to think, wow, that many times I have to forgive this person. Now, as we look at this, and we look at this text here, we see that Peter has a certain implication that kind of goes against the idea of forgiveness. When Peter says, shall I forgive him seven times, up to seven times, forgiveness has this idea of releasing, not holding somebody accountable. But to say up to seven times means that you have to kind of keep track, right? You have to kind of jot down, okay, he, he sent once, okay, that's good. Twice, all right. Three times, you're getting close. Better stop. Four, you're keeping track. It's not really goes in line with forgiveness because forgiveness means that you're not holding the person uh, to their obligation. To, to what they've done. You're forgiving them. Peter here is, is, by saying that you have to forgive them seven times, he's going against what the idea of forgiveness. Now, when we look at forgiveness, we see that when Christ forgives us, he uh, forgives us of our sins and does not think about it anymore. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, it says, uh, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. How should we understand that God remembers our sins no more? Does he become, a, you know, uh, he, he forgets? He just becomes forgetful? Gets like Alzheimer's or something? No. God chooses not to hold you accountable for that sin. At the moment you confess your sin, he, he doesn't hold you accountable. It's not that like he forgets something. He does not hold that sin against you. Ephesians chapter 10, verse 17, it says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's not that he's going around forgetting stuff. He does not hold you accountable for your sins. We know from uh, 1 John 1, 9, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So when God forgives, he no longer holds you accountable for, what that, for that sin, that lawlessness that you did. He doesn't go around forgetting. He just doesn't hold you accountable anymore. So Peter's implication of seven times, while it's rather generous, it kind of goes against the idea of forgiveness, which is not holding the person accountable anymore. What Jesus proposes here is grace, and a lot of grace. A, a lot of grace. You forgive over and over and over again. Can you imagine? In this type of aspect that Peter is offering this, I mean, Jesus is offering this forgiveness. 
we have to understand that forgiveness in this aspect has to be both an event and a process. Uh, event, the idea of forgiveness being an event is the person comes and sins against you, and then they come and they say that they're sorry. And at that moment, you forgive them. But you know how it is. Halfway, by, by Wednesday, it's come back to your mind, hasn't it? Like, Man, that person, I let them off too easy. And you'll be tempted to start rehearsing in your mind what that person did. But forgiveness is not to hold that person accountable. So there's the aspect of the process where you have to over and over again hand it over to God and say, no, I've forgiven this person. I'm not going to hold them accountable. I have forgiven. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to meditate on this. I'm not going to keep on contemplating over and over again what they did. I'm going to forgive them. Jesus presents an event and a process that requires a lot of grace. And it would have shocked Peter and the disciples. So, Jesus goes into a parable to be able to explain exactly what's going on. He says in verse 22, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts. That word for settle has this idea of, um, it, it has this idea that, an investment was given, and he's hoping for a return. It's only used in one other place, which is in Matthew 25, verse 19, where uh, the, the slave owner, the, the head of the household, he gave each one talents, and then he left. And then he comes back to settle the accounts, and, and he had these three different uh, uh, stewards, and one had invested it, the other one had invested but the third one had done what? He had buried a hole and hid it. Uh, here... This idea of settling means that the money was given with expecting a return. And he wants to settle the accounts with his slaves. What's interesting about this is that the king decides when that moment is going to be. It's not the slaves that get all the money together and decide, okay, I'm ready. No, there's an appointed time when the king will call the debts in. And at that time, the slave has to appear and give the money. He can't decide when he's going to do this. No. The king does it. And as, you, as we look at this, it's a huge amount of money. Uh, it, it, he says 10,000 talents. Uh, one guy who uh, was a, wrote a commentary, he says it's around about 9.6 to $12 billion worth. At this time, Jerusalem paid... Uh, 5,000 talents yearly to Rome. Can you imagine twice the amount that all the whole nation of Israel, this one guy owed that much? It's a huge debt. Uh, an enormous debt. He, he doesn't have the money. So the king, what does he decide to do? It's going to be a total loss for him. Everything is going to be lost. He's going to be put in prison. His Wife is going to be sold. His children are going to be sold. All to be able to repay this enormous debt. And still, it won't become even close to what he owes. Even though they sell everything he owns, it won't come anywhere close to the amount of money he owes. I can't even imagine trying to pay off that much. 9.6 billion doesn't even, I mean, I can read it, but I have no bearing on it. I can't even imagine what that would look like. It's a huge debt that this guy has. But it's interesting to look at the reaction of this man. He says uh, in, in verse 25, 
But since he, ha- uh, since he did not have any means to repay, the Lord, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground, and he's there bowing before him. And, in, and, and can you imagine the audacity? He says, be patient with me, and I'll repay it. Really? You're going to pay back $9.6 billion? you got to be kidding me. Just give me a couple more days, and, and you'll have it all. Don't, don't worry. Just, just give me a couple more days, and I'll pay it. The pride and the arrogance that this man has to have to be able to think that somehow he's going to work enough to somehow pay this debt. Have you you ever seen this type of arrogance before? I bet you have. They say, just give me a little bit more time. I'll get there. Well, King, he decides to to forgive him. He, He goes beyond the request of just giving him more time. He forgives him the debt. The whole thing, they don't have to pay him back. He released him and forgave him the debt, as it says in verse 27. Wow, that's a lot of grace. Can you imagine receiving that much grace? Can you imagine owing that much money and then it totally be totally forgiven and you don't have to owe a thing on it? Can you imagine how you would feel if you owe that much money and all of a sudden it just all disappeared? How would you act? You, you would have to be happy. You would have to be totally excited about the grace you received. I mean, you, you could see it on your face, I would imagine, right? Uh, people have paid off their homes, and they say that it's great to have a, a purchased home. They're homeowner. They, they've got the title. No longer does the bank have it. And, and they say it's a good feeling to have. Can you imagine not having that debt anymore? Here's this guy, and he, has, he doesn't have any debt, but it's interesting to see what he does. And the way Jesus presents it, he, he presents a rapid sequence of verbs as, as this guy goes out. He went out and found one of his fellow slaves. And the idea is, is not that it's somebody uh, below him, but it's one of his equals. They're, they're both slaves. And he asked him to pay him a hundred denarii. That's, that's about a thousand bucks that some people estimate. About a thousand bucks. It's... it's a large sum of money. Some might have it in, in your pocket right now, but for others of us, it, it's a good little chunk of change. But it's something doable, is it not? I mean, even if you pay minimum wage and you get minimum wage after several years, you could pay somebody back a thousand bucks. Nine point six billion. I don't know how many years you'd have to work and how much money you would have to make to be able to pay that back. So it's, it's a very small amount. But what does he do? He seizes him and begins to choke him and say, pay me back what you owe. What a contrast. The guy was one second before the king asking for forgiveness. The other, we see him, and he's choking a man, squeezing his life out, asking for a hundred denarii, a thousand bucks. I want it, and I want it now. What's the response of this guy? Well, I mean, he shows the same humility as the other guy. He's down on the floor begging for patience. He says he'll repay it. But how was that servant, the one that received so much grace? He was unwilling 
and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. No grace. Even though he had received so much grace, he could extend no grace to his fellow slave, to his fellow servant. Now, as we look at this, what's interesting is that there's always people watching, isn't there? And there was other slaves that were seeing, as it says in verse 31, fellow slaves. They saw what happened. They saw how he acted and how he threw this other guy into prison. And so they go and they approach the king and tell him what he did. The king summons him and says, you wicked slave, verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have had mercy on you. Can you imagine having to be in front of that king who, who bestowed so much grace on him and now he has shown no grace to his fellow person, to his fellow slave. Can you imagine how tense that room would feel? Well, as we look at this, we see some, some things that I, I think are very applicable to us. The first is that grace was given, but grace was not received. Grace was given out to this man, but he did not secure it for himself. He did not take it in, because there was an implication for his life that did not live out. And this happens many times. We see that uh, God has sent his son to die, and he came and he died, not for our sins only, as it says in First uh, John uh, two, two, not for our sins only, but for the sins for the whole world. Does the whole world go to heaven? No, because not everyone will believe. Some will say, I'll make it on my own. Just give me time. Just give me some time and I'll make it. But what does God say about our good works? <laughs> Isaiah 64, 6. They're like filthy rags. The best deeds that you think you can do that somehow are going to merit something, they're going to bring you a little bit closer, God considers them filthy rags. So I'm going to try. I'm going to put forth my best effort. And God says it's no good. He despises it as you would despise a filthy rag. Grace was given, but he didn't apply that grace to his life. He knew that that debt was forgiven, but he did not live like a forgiven person. Now, not only was grace given, but we see man's pride. Man's pride in this whole situation. The man owed an exorbitant amount of money, huge amount of money. Even if you go with the uh, 9.6 billion, that's a huge sum of money. But what does he tell the king? Just give me some time. Just give me some time and I will do it. I'll, I'll pay it all back. It's amazing you go and you share the gospel with some people and they say, no, I don't need that. Well, how, how are you going to get into heaven? Well, I've been, I've been good, pay my taxes. I, I do what's right. It, it doesn't. Your pride is just going to push you further and further and further away from God. In fact, um, we can see that this man's pride, where he is not really someone who has accepted this grace, because in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he says, forgive us our debts 
as we forgive others. We as a community of forgiven people are to be forgiving others. And those who have been forgiven, forgive others. But this man is not forgiving, which means he has an intellectual knowledge that his debt has been forgiven, but he's never taken it himself. He has animosity towards the other person. The other thing we see here is uh, this man's ungraciousness. And this is very interesting here, that many times when we're victims, we become we victimize other people. Here's this person that owed a lot, and now he's going to go and attack someone who owes him. And that's something very interesting about people who do not live forgiven and do not forgive. Those who really haven't understood God's forgiveness, they end up having a root of bitterness in their hearts. And even though, so give the example of a, a father has, has mistreated me, and I hate my father, and I do the same thing to my kid. Or a person says, I hate my mother, she, she treated me this way, and then you see them acting the same way to their kids. And then their kids do to their kids and their kids. Why? Why does it keep on happening this way? Because they're not living forgiven. And they're not bestowing that grace to others. They're holding on to that bitterness, and that bitterness produces fruit, and that fruit, you start to victimize people around you. And you see it over and over and over again. People who don't live forgiven, they have this fruit of bitterness around them. They hold people at, at arm's distance from them. They, 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 that's how they are. They live ungracious, and they victimize other people. That's what he did. He didn't really understand the grace that was given to him. Now, we see this man's punishment. And this man's punishment is quite severe. And what's interesting about this is that a hundred denarii cost him everything. In fact, the hundred denarii exposed his heart that he was never truly accepted that forgiveness himself. It exposed his heart that he wasn't a person who really believed in that forgiveness. He didn't really understand the, the debt that was paid for him. He didn't really understand it. So for a hundred denarii exposed his heart and he was not willing to forgive other people. This man loses everything that he has. And he says, um, uh, verse 34, And the Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to his tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. How long will that take? Forever and ever. He'll never stop having to repay what he did. His, the punishment is forever. It's not that this man lost his salvation, no. He knew that he had been forgiven, but he didn't understand the implications of it. He didn't take it for himself, and he didn't act upon it and live with other people that way. Here was a man who only had a head knowledge about being forgiven his debt, but he didn't understand it. Now, where is our sin in all this? Our temptation is, as we look at this, is to think that my sin's not that bad. I, I'm the hundred denarii guy. I'm not the 10,000 talents guy. My, my sins are teeny tiny. They're, they're grayish white. They're more white than gray. Oh, you can't even count them as sins, really. They're, they're just little things that happen. But your sin, oh, your sins are serious sins. They're terrible sins. 
And the temptation is to think that my violation against God is nothing compared to your violation against me. And that's what pride will do. Pride will say, I, I work harder. Pride will say that I suffer the most. Pride will say that my sin is less than everyone else's. And everyone else's sin is much more serious than my sin. So I can't go around forgiving people because what has been done to me is so serious. But when we acknowledge that our sin against God is that 10,000 talents, that my sin against a holy God is that huge debt and other people's sin against me is that small debt, then I can forgive people. Then I can take out that root of bitterness and I can live loving other people. The sin is the temptation to think my sin's not that bad, but other people's sin is terrible. And you might be caught in that today. You might say, you don't know what has happened to me. You don't know the abuse I've gone through. You, you don't know the situation I went through. That guy said he was my friend, and he betrayed me. I, I don't have to know. All I have to know is the Scripture. And the Scripture says that our sin against God is much greater than our sin against one another. And if we have been forgiven that great of a sin, then we can forgive other people. Jesus leaves off with a warning and it's verse 35. It says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's a warning. It's a serious warning that the Father will act just like the King. For those individuals who think, I'm going to hold on to this bitterness. I'm not going to release that person. That person has not suffered enough. I'm going to keep on thinking about it and bringing it up to my mind. And over and over again, I'm going to be sharing it as prayer requests on Wednesday. Pray for so-and-so because you know what they did. And make them pay over and over and over again. It builds this fruit of bitterness inside you. And the fruit is a terrible fruit. You'll start to notice that people will start distancing themselves from you. They don't want to hear what you have to say. It's just negativity keeps on coming out. Because a person who has never accepted the, the grace that God has offered, they know intellectually what God has done, but they don't apply it to their own life. They're, they're not saved. And what you'll see is that these people will start victimizing those around them, and they'll justify it based on the fact that that person's sin is so terrible so they deserved what I did to them. Oh, do you not see the grace of God towards you? Do you not see how terrible your sin was and He forgave you? If He forgave you so big of a debt, can you not forgive those around you? What we've seen here is that Christians must forgive by reconciling with God who has forgiven a much bigger debt. The debt that God has forgiven you is much bigger than any debt that someone has against you. How do we do this? Well, we've got to remember that forgiveness is an event and a process. And it's really hard if the person is no longer alive. That person was never going to come to you now and ask for forgiveness. So somehow this has to be applicable even if the other person never comes to you and asks for forgiveness. Right? So this has to be applicable. So how do you do that? 
You forgive the person by no longer holding them under that moral or legal obligation. You release them. And it takes a moment to do that. To say, I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to forgive. But it's also a process. Because tomorrow morning when you wake up, you say, they haven't suffered enough. You need to process this a little bit more. You need to think about this a little bit more. They need to pay for what they've done, and you have to remember, no, I forgave them. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. He's the righteous judge. It's an event, and it's a process. And it takes time for a person to over and over again to root out that root of bitterness by over and over again forgiving that person. And it requires acknowledging that your debt was so big and God forgave you. And because you have received that grace, you can graciously give it to others. How do you do that? You confess your sin. You realize your sin is much worse than whatever you experience. You forgive those who have sinned against you. And you pray for that person. Oh, I don't mean that God will strike them with lightning. You pray that God will work in their lives. That God will prosper them. That, that they will that they will grow and walk with the Lord. It'll change your heart. It'll change the fruit that you have inside of you from bitterness to the stench of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. Are you willing to do that? Maybe you're not willing to do that because even though you have information about this forgiveness, you've never accepted it for yourself. You've never believed yourself in that forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they've been dealing with years of bitterness and they can't get over it and they just don't have the power to do that. I pray that today will be the day of salvation and through your Spirit's working in their life that they can forgive and keep on forgiving. Father, there's others here who are believers who say that they've trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But something happened in their life a long time ago and they're holding on to that bitterness. They've not forgiven. They keep on processing it over and over again in their mind. I pray that today will be a day where they can forgive and that tomorrow will be a day that they can forgive and the next day and the rest of their lives that they can realize that the grace that you have bestowed upon us is so great that all we have to do is use a little bit of the grace towards other people around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me?